Welcome to Files on Air, an Air AA podcast series where contributors from AA Files read their work. AA Files is the Architectural Association's Journal of Record and promotes original and engaging writing on architecture and its related fields. No House, Shameless Architecture in 21st Century Japan by Brendan Carlin. During the period of economic and psychic depression that occurred throughout Japan in the 1990s, referred to as the Lost Decade, Ryu Murakami wrote the novel Kibo no Kuni no Exodasu, Exodus of the Land of Hope. In this work, published in 2000, he describes a Japanese youth who, despite an overabundance of truly all manner of things, were overwhelmed by a feeling of oppression and a total lack of hope. They abandon Japanese society and form a new one in a rural area on the northern island of Hokkaido, which they call Nohoro. At the supposed end of the lost decade, which coincided with Murakami's own youth, the architectural practice Atelier Bauwau, Atelier Wan in Japanese, the latter half of the name being an onomatopoeic word for a dog's bark or bow wow, also acknowledged a kind of overabundance of all manner of things in the city. However, rather than fleeing it or searching for a new ideal society, the studio founders Yoshiharu Sukamoto and Momoyo Kaijima chose instead to open their eyes and strain their ears and listen to the hopeless city itself. In 2001 and 2002, Atelier Bauwau published its Made in Tokyo and Pet Architecture Guidebooks. Both were dedicated to a Tokyo impoverished by hopelessness and overabundance, but in which the studio discovered humorous new animals. Through basic written information, modest photographs and simple line drawings of exteriors, the guidebooks construct an atlas of urban units that Sukumoto and Kaijima refer to as off in some capacity when measured against the perfectly on resolved canonical edifices that typically constitute magnificent architecture. The buildings chosen are neither nostalgic nor idealistic and might, they suggest, therefore be labeled hajishirazu or haranchi, shameless, or dame, no good or junky architecture by critics and architects. Built with limited budgets and in awkward or leftover spaces, the selected examples are unconcerned with mannerism or taste. They were instead conceived with the aim of facilitating eclectic and immediate forms of use that undermine typical architectural or urban categories, sanctities, and typological thinking. Their celebration of an immediacy of use in a given context means that Tsukamoto and Kaijima purposefully omit any plans or interior images of the chosen examples, which suggests that their layout and the forms of life that they facilitate can only be determined by the inhabitants of the building within the changing circumstances of their own lives. Examples from Made in Tokyo include a highway department store that combines a utilitarian urban infrastructure with what would, in Tokyo, typically be an elegant or spectacular architecture for shopping. Another building in the book, referred to as the Bridge Home, is a housing project that nestles into and uses the structure of a bridge while taking advantage of its proximity to an adjacent cemetery and small triangular park for their greenery and outdoor space. 
One unit, which ultimately inspired Isilie Bauwell to develop a survey of tiny buildings that became pet architecture, is a tiny triangle-shaped house of no more than 12 square meters. The exterior perimeter and facade of the house is essentially hidden behind a washing machine and several vending machines, not unlike those typically found adorning street edges all around Japan. Despite what many might perceive as an awkward messiness in these projects that indicates a wider problem to be grappled with, in pet architecture, Sukumoto and Kaijima describe the buildings as humorous and charming, like domestic pets. They squeeze into tiny spaces, are cheaply built and well adapted to their immediate circumstances, and engender a kind of shameless hierarchy of needs by appropriating an abundance that is already always at hand. In Domestic Animals, a title that begs us to draw parallels with pet architecture, published in 1987, Andrea Bronzi proclaimed, Houses like machines yesterday, machines like houses today, houses like factories yesterday, factories like houses today. Within the fragile and constantly violated borders of our homes, a new hierarchy can be created, one where even information has solely a decorative value. This prophecy of sorts suggests that within the changing paradigm of domestic architecture exists the possibility for a kind of borrowing from and profanation of a modernism that might best be exemplified by Le Corbusier's pure canonical works and aesthetic, and of course, by his statement that the house is a machine for living. In one interpretation of the text, however, Bronzi's foresight explicitly prefigures one particular project from the Made in Tokyo guidebook, a concrete factory apartment building that mixes together offices, concrete processing facilities, loading spaces, and housing into one jumbled structure. The building cannot be distinguished as any one of the categories that it apparently represents, but is instead all of them and none of them at the same time. These are architectures stripped of purity or expression concerned with the here and now and nothing else. They could be called architectures without architects, or at the very least, architectures with shameless architects. Shameless architecture, for Tsukamoto and Kaijima, illuminates the reality of the city's condition, a reality that in Tokyo at the end of the last decade seemed anti-aesthetic, anti-historic, anti-planning, and anti-classification. The paradigmatic examples of shameless architecture assembled in Atelier Bauau's guidebooks therefore tend towards a non-compositional and non-typological condition. Here, the term non-typological architecture is used to refer to a practice and examples that tend towards a lack of ritual, form, ideals, programming, and style. Especially in this case, however, it also refers to an absence of the kind of frictionalist, functionalist, driven composition of space that has defined architecture in Japan since the designed rationalization of everyday life during westernized modernization and industrialization became the primary focus of its political strategies. The kind of canonical architecture Atelier Bauwell ridicules is a recent development in the long history of Japan. Until a mid-19th century threat of colonization by Western powers, architects did not exist in the country. The maxims Fukoku Kyohei, rich country, strong military, and Shokusan Kogyo give rise to industry, 
established the criteria for the rationalization of everyday life, work, and housing, as well as the organization of the factory, office, and city. In 1879, the first group of Japanese architects graduated under the tutelage of the foreign expert English architect and graduate of the Architectural Association, Josiah Condor. Design, before that point, was something that happened on site as a result of conversations between daiku, designer, builder, priests, and future inhabitants, or even with the involvement of entire communities. Once the process fell within the purview of cultural reformers and the professional architects, however, it was increasingly patronized by banks and private financing, corporations, and the state. The architect's design became a plan to be built faithfully by new, de-skilled construction crews and lived in by new worker families. During a large part of the 20th century, architects in Japan took on responsibility for the instrumental distribution of rooms, circulation, and utilities in domestic units, commercial and industrial properties, and urban development plans that would contribute to the modernization, increased efficiency, and heightened enjoyment of the population. The family, factory, office, and city thus became the object, subjects, and relationalities upon which their compositional knowledge could be exercised. Nuclear family housing, designated NLDK by the 1950s, for example, was a realm within which the practice of compositional rationality was instrumentalized to achieve the improvement of hygiene, efficiency, and functionality in the housewife's domestic labor, relative to schedules and conflicts within the rhythms of the school, office, supermarket, and factory. As an equal and opposite countermeasure to the deep rationalization imposed on the city and private life, however, architecture was also composed, both rhetorically and ideologically. The house, for example, was designed as a frictionless private realm that could facilitate voluntary, egalitarian care and relationships, romantic and parental love, continuity with origins and progress, and individually segregated space in the private room. In contrast to the imposition of these abstract concrete rationalities, in pre-modern Japan, life was both more fluid and more ritualized. Complex cultural variations between localities meant that there were almost as many Japanese housing types as there were villages. Yet since the Meiji period, there have been continued cycles within which historical and situated forms of life have been destroyed. Political movements have been suppressed and industrial rationalities have been imposed upon architecture, life, and social relationships. While this repeated trend continues to provoke waves of resistance, refusal, and nihilism, these have at every juncture been counteracted by new state-led organizations of production and new attempts to either compose an artifice of continuity with the past or progress towards the future. These kinds of compositional reformulations are perhaps most canonically demonstrated in the architecture of Kenzo Tange, which, both during and after Japan's imperial colonialism, was modern and elegant, but also paradoxically imbued with his version of a resurrected ancient Japanese aesthetic. In 2010, Tsukamoto pointed out that Tokyo is a constantly metabolizing city where the average lifespan of a house is 26 years and where a history of furious destruction and reconstruction for the purposes of economic growth or because of war and earthquakes has stripped away most traces of the historical life and city. 
Indeed, in the almost 20 years since Made in Tokyo and Pet Architecture were published, the Japanese city has kept on transforming rapidly. It has continued to deconstruct and even destroy historical architectures and modes of life, as well as their tasks and categories, and to metabolize them into increasingly complex, decentralized networks of urban relationships. Since the 1990s, destructive tendencies in the Japanese city have only accelerated, increasing flexibilization and casualization of working and employment practices. Yet rigid hierarchies and intense performance expectations at home and work have been maintained or even heightened, causing large numbers of people amid the widespread conditions of social and economic precarity to be described as refugees or parasites. Part-time workers, the homeless, and escapees of all varieties from normative society sleep in 24-hour internet and manga cafes and are often referred to as Nato Cafe Nanmin, internet cafe refugees. Young adults and workers who cannot find stable employment or afford their own housing or who otherwise refuse to enter the types of oppressive workplace or maintain the typical lifestyles on offer shelter away in their parents' houses indefinitely. At the same time, this does not mean that they continue to have close relationships with their parents. In many cases, they tend to interact with their families less and less, as evidenced by a surge in the number of NLDK houses being renovated to add a new private entrance so that a parasite, single child, can access their room without needing to encounter the other occupants. The infamous hikikomori, people who avoid social contact, are usually young to middle-aged adults who refuse to leave their rooms for six months or more, of which there have been estimated to be up to two million in Japan in the early 21st century. Commercial and private architectures of these kinds, which are concerned with meeting basic needs instead of ideals, are increasingly being built across Japan as the market responds to the widespread rejection of or exclusion from typical family structures and domestic typologies. In reappropriations that could not have been foreseen or predicted, these new refurbishments misuse existing buildings and infrastructures in the sense that their forms of occupation deviate from the original designs and plans. This phenomena is arguably propelled by a continued contradiction between, on the one hand, the ideals, norms, and dictates of the economy and production that confine life to specific designs, and on the other, the fact that constantly evolving and changing life forms and relationships can ultimately never be categorized and prescribed. Both individually and taken as a whole, these paradigmatic examples of new domestic spaces tend ever more explicitly towards the non-idealistic, non-typological, and non-compositional condition that Atelier Bauwau had recognized in 2001, a tendency that might presage or otherwise reveal the coming to the fore of a new primitive figure in Japanese society in the most positive of senses. Shameless Destroyers In Japanese media and literature since at least the 1950s, Young people who do not become responsible, productive adults with full-time jobs and families have been derided as selfish, hedonistic, and amoral. Even those who do work but are employed on increasingly precarious contracts and low wages are not spared the abuse. Politicians such as the late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe 
and the former governor of Tokyo, Ishihara Shintaro, have blamed Japan's suffering economy, the decline in marriage, and extremely low birth rate on young people's laziness, selfishness, brash consumerism, and obsession with eroticism. The average number of children that a woman will have in her lifetime stood at 1.26 in 2019. 44% of 34-year-old Japanese have reportedly not had sex and kodokushi, a lonely death where the body is not discovered for months or years after the fact, and karoshi, death from overwork, have become epidemics. These phenomena are also entangled with the spatial dissolution or fragmentation of both the scale and fabric of the historical city as single children increasingly inherit land. Because they cannot pay the high inheritance taxes, they typically subdivide it into tiny plots to sell, which in turn breeds new tiny buildings. Aside from the terminology used to refer to these disenfranchised young people, such as parasites, women over 30 without children have been described in the Japanese media as makeinu, loser dogs. Even the political left and progressives in Japan have derided figures such as the hikikomori, freeders, unemployed, and neets, not in education, employment, or training, for their apathy, for being uninterested in protest and political action. The use of dehumanizing names like parasites and animals brings to light the extent to which nihilism and everyday life, as well as biological reproduction, are central to politics in Japan today. This dehumanization, a denial of the subject, both human or animal, however, suggests a more positive trend when considered from another angle, namely a rejection of those things that make people human according to governing or instrumentalizing powers, also means a loss of the handles by which people can in turn be instrumentalized, categorized, and captured. As the poet Friedrich Hölderling quipped, where danger grows, grows also saving power. In other words, what these new animals, or what we might call new primitives because they are, of course, still human, might portend is a possibility for overcoming what the philosopher Giorgio Agamben has referred to as anthropological machines that govern, orient, and capture life and its forms. Though the rejection and derision of people who refuse to become producers and reproducers, as well as the expiry and devaluation of any positive projects and apparatuses of humanization, is evident in the dissolution and fragmentation of the contemporary Japanese city, its occupants might nevertheless be finding ways to evade capture by embracing and exploiting an urban condition that is increasingly stripped of any preconceptions about who they are or should be and how they should live in and relate to the city. Since the late 1990s, many NLDK units once the dominant dwelling type for the nuclear family in Japan, have been converted into small or tiny individual units such as the 1, 1K, 1DK, 1 Room or Soho, small office, home office, apartment types. These usually have floor areas around 20 square meters or less and contain tiny prefabricated bathroom units and cooking facilities that are often too small to prepare a meal in. This is especially true in urban centers such as Tokyo, where by 2009, 40% of rented housing stock had one room and more often than not, only one occupant.
But even when considering the entirety of Japan, both rural and urban, by 2015, single-person households were the most common form of domestic unit, and one- to two-person households constituted 60% of the total. Part of the reason that such small apartments are possible is because the city has sympathetically developed into a kind of giant house itself, with a domestic infrastructure that externalizes many of the functions once contained within the dwelling. Here, to echo Toyoito's observations from the 1980s, the apartment or the housing unit is reduced to an unscripted cell for rest, work, or consumption, all seemingly happening in bed. A place simply to sleep and dress in order to leave it again. Kaijima and Tsukumoto, too, have characterized Tokyo as a city that lacks a clear distinction between interior and exterior. This is, of course, in large part thanks to the extraordinary Japanese kombini, convenience stores, where one can buy a huge range of cold or hot meals, groceries, toiletries, and clothing items, and even pay bills. Open around the clock and so numerous that one never seems to have to walk more than five minutes to find one, their convenience is so seductive that they have become a regular fixture in the majority of Japanese people's daily lives. The spaces of consumption, sustenance, and care in the Japanese city have also become paradigms for the total breakdown of social relations in what is one of the most densely crowded places on earth. For example, it is not uncommon to find ramen or soba restaurants in Tokyo where customers order from a machine and then sit on their own tiny partitioned cubicle-like stalls, allowing people to pack in at close proximities without becoming uncomfortably close to any given stranger. In the past five to ten years, this move towards the externalization of domestic activity is evident in an increasingly common typology in Japan's densified urban areas, predominantly Tokyo, known as the micro-apartment, a closet-like unit of 10 square meters or less that includes basic amenities such as a bed, kitchenette, and tiny bathroom. Such dwellings are so compact that they must be incredibly precise in their use of space, and companies now adjust their designs by the millimeter and obtain patents for their particular configurations. Apartments of this kind have also become popular in the media. The majority of interviews with closet tenants show the inhabitants to be students or part-time service workers who also use their spaces as offices or creative studios. The extreme compactness of these units means that their floor plans seem guided by a hyper-rationality that has no social ideal whatsoever and is concerned only with the provision of functions and undefined individual space. In fact, the plans of many resemble the theoretical and non-compositional e-projects developed by Hiromi Fuji during the 1970s. They are simply a subdivision of a rectangle into equal parts and thus demand no flourishes, glorification, or embellishment of any kind. There are, however, more temporary and even more minute pay-by-the-hour sleeping options in Japanese cities for those who cannot afford or otherwise refuse to be tied into any fixed dwelling place as apartments have both reduced in size and increased in cost. Examples such as the capsule hotel and the cells of the typical internet cafe can, of course, be traced to the first capsule hotel in Osaka, built in 1979, designed by Kisho Kurakawa, and based on his Nakagin tower of the same kind. 
Originally, the building was designed to give commuters a place to sleep after a long night and to provide the setting for the obligatory social bonding ritual of heavy sake and beer drinking with colleagues. Since then, the capsule hotel has also become one of the cheapest options as a place to stay for temporary and transient workers, for growing numbers of tourists, and for increasing numbers of people who prefer not to enter the obligations of the rental or property and often job markets. Similarly, a range of service and entertainment businesses have also begun to mutate in order to accommodate functions that were once situated in the house. For example, numerous manga and net cafes are open for 24 hours a day, include comfortable reclining chairs, offer food and drink, and increasingly feature showers, laundry facilities, and kitchenettes. Net cafes offer both private, fully enclosed cabins in which guests can lie flat depending on their height and cubicle-style compartments with amply padded reclining chairs. Each unit typically has large screen computers and a television. Such cafes have become full-service, pay-by-the-hour hotels, places where couples can escape cultural customs and traditions and where young people can have sex away from their families free from both expectations and scrutiny. The net cafe can now be called a form of housing for an increasing number of what are referred to as netto cafe nanmin, or net cafe refugees. This group is composed of the homeless and jobless, but also part-time workers who cannot afford a deposit, sometimes the equivalent of six months rent for an apartment. Though like micro apartments in many ways, Capsule hotels and net cafes are even more extreme and that they pretend to be temporary. Here, precarious figures escape into an opaque grid that is laid out to optimize costs and efficiency. Not only can we consider this hyper-rational subdivision of the interior non-compositional, but not unlike the examples in Atelier Bauau's guidebooks, one-room apartments, net cafes, micro-apartments, and other examples of fragmentary architecture often renovate and repurpose found buildings that are cluttered with hybrid functions. In this sense, they might be called non-compositional on the exterior in that they occupy and reappropriate found buildings that were designed for something else. These are often buildings that may at some point have had an ambition towards culture, communication, but are now dame, shameless, exteriors, whose internal organs have also been stripped of any historical social ideal or relation, and therefore tend towards the non-typological. The fragmentation of historical forms of life through the externalized provision of hybrid domestic services by commercial entities in Japan is not only observable in pre-purposed buildings, however. Sento, public bathhouses, and onsen, natural thermal bathhouses, have mutated into what are now called supa sento, super public bathhouses, which cater to inexpensive overnight stays and offer everything one would need to permanently live there. Sento have been slowly declining in number since the rise of Ofudo, private baths in houses, surpassed 50% in 1965, following the Japan Housing Corporation's introduction of them into domestic units. However, Supa Sento have rapidly increased in number since they first started to emerge in the 1990s. A 2013 study found 531 operating nationally. Historically, Sento were described in literature as bathhouses maintained by 8th century monks, 
in which commoners would also bathe in exchange for an offering or donation. Later, they became popular as therapeutic centers where visitors could heal both their physical and psychological ailments. They occasionally served as brothels before being regulated legally. Supacento can be found both within and at the periphery of urban areas. Upon entering one, in this case, let us take the example of the giant Oedo Onsen Monogatari near the city of Shizuoka, visitors first encounter a kind of mega genkan, entrance vestibule, where umbrellas and jackets are stored and shoes are kept in tiny lockers. Guests are then provided with a yukata, robe, to wear after bathing. All activities in the space are generally conducted naked or in the yukata. The main axis of the building is organized along a long central corridor, split into male and female areas, where all clothes are removed and stored, as is typical in Japanese bathing. Visitors bathe seated, Japanese style, and may later enter a series of indoor or outdoor hot and cold baths, saunas, and a wide range of therapeutic areas. After bathing, visitors may take their children to collective play areas, or in some cases, leave them in nurseries, or dine in a large communal eating area at a cafe or canteen. Visitors can also sleep in tatami rooms for small groups of four to 10 people, in large areas of rectangular tatami mats for up to 60 people, or in excessively cushioned reclining chairs laid out in expansive grids. This sleeping area setup is typical of the supacento and can perhaps be described as a form of absolutely non-compositional architecture because in plan, each space is simply defined only by a large rectangular arrangement of tatami mats and walls that enclose two or three sides. More recently, designated work areas that resemble co-working offices have been introduced into some supacento. For example, in the case of Ryokoku Yuya Edoyu in the Sumida ward of Tokyo, there are common rooms containing desks dotted with power and USB outlets, smaller glass rooms with tables inside a large rolling landscape of spaces littered with cushions and bean bags that can be used for working, eating, or sleeping. While this kind of novel interior landscape has been critiqued as being instrumental to the production of liberated neoliberal subjectivity, it nonetheless contains in its expression a radical and yet suspended potential. The negativity of its interior landscape, devoid of programs, rooms, circulation, or explicit symbolism, lacks any ritual form or functionalist planning at the level of architecture proper, and thus, in a sense, tend towards the negation of any historical, idealized, productive figure. The state, however, always seems to intervene to counterpose this tendency of architecture to become increasingly blind to the subject. In recent years, the Japanese government has subsidized Sento and regulated the form and services provided at Onsen. Insurance-covered medical services are now offered at the former that follow, quote-unquote, traditional Japanese Sento rules. In such cases, government intervention keeps the practices alive or reinvents them and makes sure they follow a specific representation of Japaneseness. Sento thus evoked Japanese identitarian rituals and symbols in order to counterbalance the consequences of what is in fact a continued dissolution of a form of life resembling anything in historical Japan. The steel and concrete of the city 
is balanced with wood and natural stone. Urban density is contrasted with a bucolic garden setting. Continued or complete and mutated westernization and foreignization is contrasted with traditional Japanese symbolism and dress. Isolation and coldness is contrasted with proximity and warmth. Supa Sento, however, generally break with many traditions and have a decidedly less nostalgic aesthetic. In fact, Ryokoku Yuya Edoyu renovated its traditional wood facade in 2018 by converting it into a front of backlit perforated metal and converted one of its bathing spaces into a co-working area. Increasingly, this provision of additional amenities means that the Supa Sento are gradually becoming very inexpensive forms of temporary pay-by-the-hour housing. Permanent non-dwelling. The urban and behavioral shifts that have seen the evolution of externalized, interlinked domestic services into singular architectures intended to provide all of the necessities of contemporary living are not unique to spaces of bathing, capsule hotels, or net cafes, though. Many other businesses in the service industry and residential building projects by individual actors and even corporate developers are beginning to reflect the same trend as they mutate into different forms of boarding house that defy categories because they can accommodate everything that the home city dyad once did. Since 2007, apartment buildings and NLDK typologies are increasingly being converted into share houses and more recently into social apartments. Some of the first known modern share houses in Japan were established independently by single mothers with children in the mid-1990s after the asset price bubble burst in 1992, which caused an economic crisis. These women reappropriated nuclear family housing types for a form of life that had no institutional precedent in Japan. In a shared house of this kind, individuals typically have private rooms of around 10 to 12 square meters on average, where they normally sleep. All other spaces, as well as domestic labor activities, are shared. The popularity of these houses has surged since their inception because they provide more flexible rental contracts, looser tenant profile requirements, and much lower upfront costs. They are also typically closer to offices and amenities. Examples of newly built share houses have become popular features in magazine articles and exhibitions both inside and outside of Japan. An off-sited reference for this type of housing is the Yokohama apartment building, which was designed by ON Design Partners, Osamu Nishida and Erika Nakagawa, and completed in 2012. The block was intended for young artists, and like so many examples of shared houses, the layout of its dwelling spaces tends towards the non-compositional. This is not only because their design is driven by efficiency or function, but also because the architects themselves are unable to reasonably predict the lifestyles of prospective residents or indeed prescribe in any great detail how they might interact socially. Created by subdividing a roughly square plan into equal quarters, the four interior rooms in the Yokohama apartment building each contain a compact kitchenette, shower and toilet at their periphery but are otherwise simply blank enclosures of about 12 square meters. Raised up at first floor level, these private units all have individual access staircases that descend around the outside of the block 
and land at its center in an open space sheltered by the room sitting atop it like a roof. A large generic assembly of kitchen equipment sits near the middle of the common area to be shared by occupants. At each corner of the ground floor area, a triangle-shaped room works like a thickened column holding up the block of rooms above. These columns together contain a shared toilet, some storage spaces, and four small office or studio-type rooms, so small that any activity taking place in them can spill out into the common area if need be. Unusually, the common area has no exterior walls to screen it from the surrounding street, but only translucent plastic curtains which make it feel like neither an interior nor an exterior space. Amid a neighborhood of otherwise hermetically sealed houses, the concrete slab of the Yokohama apartment building and its common spaces, its kitchen, dining, and working areas, extend to the edge of its site and establish no solid boundaries between the activities taking place within and the public space of the street outside. Although the Yokohama Apartments is a new build project, the design is, like many buildings by Atelier Bauo, undoubtedly architecturally off. It is constructed of standard siding materials and stucco and blends in with the backdrop of apartment blocks and single-family houses around it that are of roughly the same scale. Therefore, it cannot be called a piece of magnificent architecture. The Konohana family community offers another example of the diversity and complexity of novel forms of living, as well as the tendency towards an anti-historical condition in both architectural design and community organization, which emerged in Japan during the last decade and has continued to proliferate in its aftermath. In 1994, after the economic crash of 1992, a collective of 20 members moved to a rural agricultural area around Mount Fuji and learned how to farm and organize themselves as a growing society. The group explicitly rejected typical Japanese modes of living, isolation, debt, and work in the city, and took up the task of reinventing their form of everyday lives around a new hierarchy of values that is situated, participable, and embraces constant reinvention. Today, the community comprises more than 100 people, with members ranging from newborns to non-agenarians. It occupies a series of communal houses, shops, warehouses, and company dormitories that the group bought with pooled money, and borrows fields left unused by elderly farmers. Everything they consume is produced through farming. In their large dining hall and kitchen, lunch and dinner are eaten collectively at long tables and children, the elderly, and those who choose to work there instead of farming, even for a few days, manage the cooking and cleaning together. The space also serves as a flexible hall, a place where daily meetings are initiated by children to discuss the stories of the day. It is also where suggestions for changes to the organization of work and living are debated, with topics ranging from mundane adjustments to major overhauls of how schedules, roles, and labor are to be coordinated. During the day, the hall serves as a school for the children who choose not to attend government-funded institutions. At other times, it serves as a space for celebratory events and festivals, during which tables are either rearranged or cleared from the room. Some members live in their houses nearby, while others live in collective houses with shared bedrooms. There are also large communal baths that are used at set times by all genders. Marriages exist but are not common, 
Many single mothers have moved to Konohana, and many formerly isolated older people live there. Children typically do not live with their parents, but at a young age move into a common house above the main hall where they sleep six to a room containing no furniture apart from tatami mats. There are mothers, individuals of any gender, who naturally gravitate towards spending more time with children, but who also perform a variety of other tasks as part of communal life. This de-typologizing of the mother, father, and child triad among the group has led to fluid and changing kinship relations that continue to change based on attraction and affinity, rather than according to social or indeed architectural prescriptions. The community also inhabits existing buildings and sometimes renovates them. For periods of up to three days at a time, they effectively turn the surrounding fallow farmland into living spaces by setting up tatami mats and canopies, temporary kitchens and tents in which to play, meet, cook and sleep. The Konohana family is without both historical or any categorical precedent in Japan. In constantly changing their modes of life, the group has created the common ground for a kind of permanent non-dwelling. Despite the explosion of idiosyncratic models for living and acts of self-actualization that see individuals withdraw, become transient, and form new giant households, moving towards what Atelier Bauau described as anti-categorical, anti-historical, and anti-idealistic forms of living, there are constantly new attempts to capture these tendencies in new apparatuses, to categorize them and to braid them back into the economy of the city. For instance, in 2013, the communal childcare program, which it turns out is run by a subsidized private company at the Sutaido Uizu Daikanyama Shared Housing Project was promoted by the Japanese Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, which sponsors projects and the creation of new businesses for the development of conscientious and supportive human relationships and resources. This is a pattern that can be traced in many share houses and related businesses in the housing sector. The Tsutaidu Uizu Daikanyama project is owned and operated by the Tokyu Dentetsu, a railway corporation, Kedetsu, or cartel of diversified businesses and banking companies that owns and operates key railway, elevated rail and subway lines throughout the Kansai region, and which has a station two minutes walk from the building. The Tokyu group includes other businesses in transport, retail, leisure, and culture sectors, as well as the real estate companies Tokyo Land and Tokyo Livable and Tokyo Community. The head of the conglomerate's so-called Department for the Promotion of Living Changes, which manages the Sutaidu Uizu Daikanyama building, explained that while his team works primarily in urban planning, it is also interested in improving conditions and increasing property values along the Tokyo railway and subway lines in the city. While the outwardly presented aim of this project was to, quote, create something that responds to the changes in the way we live, unquote, a press officer for a rental company that lists rooms at the property reported that its communal childcare and provision of places for collective self-organized events is mainly an important part of Tokyo's vision to increase property values in the neighborhood. This pattern of promoting new forms of living under the auspices of providing conscientious and supportive domestic infrastructure 
in order to boost economic participation and growth is consistent with Japan's government policy and broader corporate activity in the wake of the Tohoku triple disasters of 2011. The massive earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown killed almost 20,000 people, severely disrupting infrastructure, lives, and relationships. In the aftermath, communities and the government faced not only the physical reconstruction of affected areas, but also the challenge of re establishing social bonds and a sense of belonging among survivors. The necessity of connectedness and belonging, crucial for the emotional and psychological recovery of individuals and communities, emerged as a prominent theme in the wake of the disasters. In 2013, the Education Ministry announced the kanji character of the year was Kizuna or bonds, a term used and emphasized in the Japanese pavilion at the 2016 Venice Architectural Biennale, along with words such as ibasho, place of belonging. And Sunagari, connectedness. In the case of the Sutairo Uizu Daikanyama building, the location of the apartments and their high rents mean that the project primarily targets women who work in nearby corporate centers of Tokyo's Shibuya district. The intensity of life in a corporate and entrepreneurial society means that models for quote, increasing the potential of women's economic strength. Unquote, And bolstering their ability to manage their daily lives, reproduce the labor force, and find solidarity at home with other adults has been deemed necessary. An impossibility of dwelling. Rather than react to the city's predicament by attempting to offer solutions for new models of living and community structures, we might follow in the footsteps of Atelier Bawa's guidebooks and take a stubbornly honest look at these phenomena instead. As Atelier Bawa suggests, when we open our eyes and strain our ears to the real movement of the city, to examples of its subjects and forms of life, and to the quote, diversity of its spatial practices, unquote, we can see that it can never be enclosed by any system and that it negates those predicates, tasks, identities, and proper or better ways of working and living that have constantly been assigned by cultural reformers and architects. Since the Meiji reforms in Japan. In Europe during the First World War, Walter Benjamin perceived an impossibility of dwelling as a consequence of the quote, tremendous development, unquote, and consequential perpetual upheaval wrought by capitalism, as well as the technological rationalization of life for endless production. He described the poverty of this condition. As the loss of authority, knowledge, and ways of life that had been gained through experience and passed down from generation to generation as heritage. Building on Benjamin many decades later, Agamben explained quote, Deprived of an epoch, worn out and without destiny, we reached the blissful threshold of our unmusical dwelling in time. Our world has truly reached the beginning.、Unquote. In Japan, a national encounter with the impossibility of dwelling occurred with the destruction of historical modes of life and social relationships that occurred as a result of the late 19th century Meiji reforms. The country underwent a total social reorganization that involved the concomitant introduction of industrialization and capitalism in a manner more rapid and violent than has perhaps been witnessed in any other place before or since. Later in the 20th century, 
The mass destruction of the physical, psychic, and cultural fabric of Japan during the Second World War and the reforms that followed delivered an even more absolute destruction. This was discussed by figures such as the philosopher Keiji Nishitani, the novelist Yukio Mishima, and the sinologist and cultural critic Takeuchi Yoshima, who wrote that the historical rupture of the economic miracle after the war was made possible precisely because of the lack of historical subjectivity in Japan. More recently, as framed by Murakami's Kibo no Kuni Exudasu, a sense of nothingness and total lack of hope resurfaced during the neoliberal destruction of the Japanese welfare system in the lost decade at the turn of the 21st century. Benjamin characterized the contemporary experience of the industrialized capitalist world as an oppressive overflooding of commodities, spectacle, and information through an abundance of recycled or reanimated cultural relics, aesthetics, and ideas. This condition might be invoked alongside Murakami's memories of his youth in Japan at the turn of the millennium, where he found the greatest hopelessness and poverty in the total overabundance of everything. Far from being a genuine revival of any given idea or cultural reference point, Benjamin explained, the perpetual renewal and recombination of prior knowledge in a state of overabundance is instead a galvanization, a kind of superficial spattering or carnival of masks that conceals an inner core materiality of the world. This core of being hidden behind the masks is the fully realized impossibility of dwelling. But this poverty of experience, Benjamin goes on to suggest, is dangerous to instrumental domination. Those who encounter and embrace their common lack of identification with predicates, tasks, roles, and proper ways of living and relating become shameless barbarians. Given a new clarity, they might just happen to come up with a simple plan themselves and design a better use of their time for pleasure rather than endless production. It is worth noting at this point that an encounter with the clarity that comes from a suspension of the simulacrum of dwelling as composed by architects and cultural intermediaries and patronized by capital is decidedly complicated in Japan. In Buddhist belief systems, the emptiness of nirvana is achieved by overcoming desire and accepting both the groundlessness of being and the perpetual change and suffering that is part of life, an outlook that is deeply entangled with the country's complex ideological apparatuses of governance. For instance, the early 20th century philosopher Nishida Kitaro's conception of Mu no Basho, place of nothingness, was an attempt to formulate an essential foundation or predicate of Japanese identity and thus a place from which reason could be derived. In the context of a long-standing national myth of genetic exceptionalism, this notion, along with the idea of Yamato Gokuru, Japanese mind, was later harnessed in the assembly of workers into an imperial war machine in the 1930s and early 1940s. Despite these appeals to a cultural emptiness, which were paradoxically used to construct Japanese identity politics, it is nonetheless possible to argue that a realized nihilism of this kind has historically been avoided in the everyday life of citizens in Japan. Instead, life has been governed by an abundance of decidedly non-nihilistic, positive features, 
laws, rules, duties, and emotional behavioral pathologies, including shame or haji. Both natural and human-made destructive events, however, from earthquakes to nuclear bombs, have also made rapid adaptation essential. And so both within and against this physical and spiritual groundlessness, a culture that is on the one hand highly ritualized, identitarian, and aestheticized, and on the other is obsessed with importing the foreign, new, and fashionable, has flourished. As its cultural and architectural products became influential on a global scale, many 20th century Western philosophers such as Alexander Kozhev, Roland Barth, and Felix Watari made the study of Japan central to their diagnoses of the contemporary apparatuses of power. Barth, for example, discovered in Japanese society what he considered an absence of modern notions of subjectivity as a result of its perpetual desire to adapt, renew, and update, referring to it as an empire of science. In Barth's view, social interaction in Japan at the time was guided and constituted by the stylized exchange of signs, without the subject taking an active part in ascribing meaning or historical context to the world they live in. Similar readings are also common among Japanese authors and philosophers such as Takeuchi Yoshima, Murayama Masao, and the art historian Okakuru Tenshin, who described Japan as a kind of museum into which artifacts are, quote, imported and warehoused with little trace of subjective intervention, unquote. Kojev, in a similar vein to Barth, saw in Japan the emergence of a new subject that leads a life, quote, according to totally formalized values, that is, values completely empty of all human content in the historical sense, unquote. He derogatorily caricatured this post-historical figure as the snob. In the absence of religion, morals, and politics proper, he explained, Japanese civilization had established apparatuses that ritualized, retained, or borrowed historical values, using them in a purely formal manner that deprives them of all their meaning. With some similarity to Tenshin's museum analogy, Kozhev effectively argued that, quote, the snob's humanity will no longer consist in the transformative work of negation that produce new content, but rather in the formalized rituals that the snob tirelessly reproduces with no developmental or progressive effects whatsoever, unquote. For Kojin Karatani, however, the figure of the snob identified by Kozhev was nothing new. Rather, it was a rehabilitation of the 19th century pre-Meji principle of Iki, exemplified by the hedonistic and stylized culture of late Edo society that he called the paradise of fools. He described the concept as the, quote, deliberate negation of all perspectives in favor of the sole purposeful pursuit of aesthetic sophistication, unquote. Kuki Shuzo later qualified this as, quote, a mood that has been compared to the 19th century European dandyism, unquote. Karatani attributed the modern intensification of Iki, however, to the destruction of Ri, historical reason or single morality, as evidenced in the studies of the philologist and philosopher Motori Norinaga. This nihilism, understood as a lack of any possibility of pure reason, morality, 
historical experience or destiny is essential to the idea of nothingness that has always been at the foundation of the sovereign's power in Japan. Norinaga's work, for instance, criticized the Nihon Shoki, an 8th century imperial commission that invented a Japanese creation myth for its formulation and imposition of a single morality, echoing Friedrich Nietzsche's criticism of Platonism and Christianity. In Nietzsche, as in the Nihon Shoki, the notions of a single morality and a world beyond this one negated or obscured the central inessentiality of life as plurality, becoming, and contradiction. In Post-Bubble City, published in 2006, Atelier Bauau suggests that architecture, urban space, and furniture are about the assembly, quote, implementation and repetition of behavior, unquote, and are therefore not unlike performance-based art or theater. The book explains that since the end of the Second World War, and especially since the 1960s, with its, quote, explosive expansion in the range of movement of people and objects, as well as the spread of information networks, unquote, Architects in Japan and the United States have been concerned with relating architecture to the appearance of the individual. In other words, that architecture is related to the construction of the architect's individuality or subjectivity. Sukumoto claims that despite architects often bringing individuality, creativity, and artistry into their buildings through compositional articulation, they nevertheless consistently follow certain underlying scores without any substantial content. Through typology and the composition of style, architects reproduce the same performance ad infinitum, giving a mere semblance of difference. This critique can be read as an indictment of much high Japanese architecture of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Architecture that has been sanctified by elite cultural institutions in museum exhibitions and galleries which are often patronized by global finance and pharmaceutical corporations. These are companies, after all, which operate in ways that severely undermine the distinction between biological life, economy, and politics. And while Japanese architecture of this kind often tend towards the nihilistic and therefore underscores an impossibility of dwelling, it also aestheticizes nihilism in the spirit of Iki and thus keeps any radical political potential that it might represent contained or guarded. Through a type of stylization that acts on sensibility and emotional response, affective spectacles of formalized metaphors for non-dwelling operate, like the pharmaceutical products that finance them, on bare life. Agamben reminds us that the apparatuses of governance and oikonomia take life as their object precisely because, in a condition of poverty and in the absence of any real historical projects or tasks, they are at risk of unraveling. Drawing comparisons to Karatani's human inessentiality and Benjamin's poverty of experience as non-dwelling, inoperativity is a category developed by Agamben from Kojev's Desauvrement, or worklessness. It can be understood as the total absence of any nature proper to the human being when understood as, quote, the animal with language, unquote. Further, Agamben argues, there are no external tasks to which humans can be fixed or defined. 
the species is not predestined to any positively constituted existence according to any imperative or predicate. In this context, contemporary nihilism renders void all established values and discloses the absence of any historical tasks to which humanity must devote itself. Inoperativity, consequently, also suggests an original human deprivation from any genuine experience of dwelling in the world, as animals might have, after being thrown into history through communication using language and speech. It thus encapsulates the groundlessness of human potentiality, a potentiality not to do or to be trapped in a closed determinism, whether biological, vocational, cultural, or otherwise. While the inoperativity of the human being was for centuries veiled by religion or political ideology, the advent of nihilism entails its coming to the foreground of social life, writes Sergei Pozorov of Agamben's concept. And yet, Agamben states that, quote, apparatuses of government, law, or culture expropriate our potentiality and tie us to particular tasks, roles, identities, instrumentalizing forms of work and life, unquote. Beyond an analytical category, inoperativity can be understood as a mode of action, an impotentiality or becoming that can be carried into action or praxis. While the English definition of the term suggests something either out of order and defective or an absence of utility, Agamben does not advocate for inoperativity to destroy or totally nullify any given activity or work. Rather, he imagines it as a praxis that can affirm human inessentiality. Halting the apparatuses that attempt to design lives and social relationships from a distance, he argues, would, quote, result in a disappearance of the subject as we know it, unquote, leaving us with a new kind of human animal, a new primitive figure. It is therefore impossible to develop a positive predicate for any coming figure or community. This is because both our knowledge or possibility of conceiving of humans, architecture, and politics is entirely dependent on and produced by a myriad of apparatuses that have constituted us in various positive ways. In the work of Atelier Bauwell, in their guidebooks, and increasingly in their contemporary examples of found buildings in the shameless city itself, the impossibility of dwelling is evident, and therefore so too is the impossibility of ascribing positive predicates or planning, predetermining, and engineering the lives, relationships, and architecture of any future subject or community. Efforts by the state and capitalism to engineer the becoming of human relationships and lives at a distance ultimately led to a total destruction of historical dwelling. But beneath the ashes of historical types and situated life and community, a new, stable, common ground is being revealed. What we share in common is both a lack of any fixed, proper, or destined way of living and being. We share the fact that there will always be irreducible differences in the ways we construct our lives and relationships. Moreover, we share cities full of architecture, forms, and fragments, which, like us, lack any fixed property, values, function, or destiny. A new primitive architecture. One of the most striking features of Atelier Bauwell's built projects is that the studio carries inoperativity 
or a lack thereof, into its work, opening up a means for the reappropriation and misuse of architecture. This inoperativity, a courageous and conscious embrace of a non-typological and non-compositional practice in architecture, functions in different ways on the exterior and interior of the office's built projects, and is expressed in the ways that Atelier Bauau represents and writes about them in its books. In Graphic Anatomy, published in 2007, for example, the design method of the studio is described using phrases such as liberation from subjectivity and the earnestness of observation. This suggests the possibility of an architecture that is shameless and patently anti-utopian, and yet draws its resources precisely from the common places that evidence the impossibility of dwelling as something that is already manifesting itself within the city. An architecture that does not attempt to introduce anything positive into this condition of poverty, but which uses the condition and exposes it thereby opening up the possibility of new forms of use. In many of its projects, Atelier Bauwell develops a non-compositional architecture by borrowing and recomposing types and fragments from the kind of shameless examples that the studio has found in the city and surveyed in books such as Made in Tokyo and Pet Architecture. Additionally, the studio's buildings seem to learn from these examples by bending to the particularities of their situation in generating a new kind of usefulness that does not adhere to any ideal style or image. The exterior of the Ani house, for example, appears to borrow from and reform fragments from an area of Tokyo that succumbed to total industrialization and thus lacks any proper cultural identity. Built from basic industrial materials, the house is clad in corrugated metal sheeting and the front elevation is adorned with two large windows that sit at the center of the facade above a strip of windows spanning the width of the building, intended to allow light through to the interior floor area half a level below. It is important, however, to look at the work of Atelier Bauau as a whole. Consider examples such as the Mocha House, the Gay House, or the Pony Garden, all of which lack any kind of stylistic unity. There is no pretension to magnificence or specific historical identification in these projects. Instead, each borrows from its context and makes use of commonplace building shells, sometimes by accentuating their formal qualities and reappropriating their original signification. This is the case with Pony Garden, where the language of the barn as a place for animals is exaggerated and caricatured and ultimately becomes useful as a place for humans to live. Atelier Bauau's work speaks about a simple, anti-functional, utilitarian, common use of architecture and about its essential inoperativity by drawing on existing examples and profaning them, opening them to reimaginations and new uses. What is critical to consider is that while externally these projects tend towards the non-compositional, internally they speak even more decisively about the impossibility of dwelling, and especially the total impossibility of the architect's ability to plan and design it. In several examples, there are no internal subdivisions whatsoever, and the design goes to great lengths to open up the living space even freeing it from the imposition of utilities or services. 
despite the fact that there are three levels of three by three meter nine square grid plans of the Annie house were designed for a family, for example, there are no internal walls or doors. The property essentially constitutes a single continuous space spread over three floors that is connected by the vertical axes of the stairs and topped by an open roof terrace. Unlike the houses of the surrounding neighborhood, it is offset from the site equally on every side and has windows on each of them that create a kind of anti-directionality. The kitchen is relegated to one thin peripheral sliver of ground floor space and the bathroom is given a separate volume outside of the primary block. Tsukamoto remarked that the form of the Annie house came about in part because of his memory of the open fields, now completely cluttered with buildings, that used to be common in the city when he was growing up, where he would spend long hours playing outside with other children. During the design of the house, Atelier Bawa brings the open field into the interior, a radical blankness that is visible in many examples of the studio's houses from the early 2000s, such as the Mocha House and the Psycho House, which can be described in plan as blank squares at the first floor level and divided squares at the second. In other examples, the architecture introduces subdivisions but establishes new sets of hierarchies that efface known typologies and expected functions. In the design of the Ikushima Library, for instance, the client's massive collection of books led Tsukamoto and Kaijima to conceive of the house as a library. The building is centered around large open spaces surrounded by shelves for the books and only peripheral compacted spaces are provided for the other parts of the occupant's daily life. It thus seems to cater more to temporary lodgers than dwellers. Such borrowing and reappropriation of exteriors and the non-typological absence of functionalist or symbolic composition on the interior is consistent with the logic and lessons of Made in Tokyo. In the book, the interior of each found example is never described or shown. Therefore, to all intents and purposes, the interior and plan remain blank and essentially inoperative to the architecture depicted. Here, Atelier Bawa seems to relegate the subdivision of the plan to something that should not, or perhaps in the context of contemporary Japan, cannot become a problem or a game, or especially a system to drive formulaic compositions and spatial subdivisions. Unlike the studies of reformers such as Uzo Nishiyama in the 1940s, Atelier Bauau's observations do not serve as a concise data set from which the office or any other architect might be able to develop a new system for the plan. This approach therefore seems prophetic in the light of what is now happening without the intervention of high architecture in the most shameless environments of the contemporary city. What we find with net cafes, one-room apartments, micro-apartments, and shared houses are most often appropriated older buildings that were built for something else. They therefore have absolutely non-compositional exteriors. Their interior subdivision, as we have seen, also tends towards the non-compositional. Here, however, it is important to differentiate between these buildings and the non-compositional strategies of architects such as Tadao Ando, in his iconic blank Sumiyoshi row house, Sana, and their predecessors such as Hiromi Fuji in his Todoroki house. 
These examples strike a stark contrast with the wood and tile homeliness or Japanese-ness that characterizes much of the rest of the city and their designers both aestheticize and exhibit non-composition as a style. Such projects embody an inessentiality, impotentiality or worklessness towards the city and the exterior. They innately pit themselves against and therefore dialectically engage with a motley melange of Japanese and Western styles. Architecture whose exterior exhibits a spectacle of poverty, inessentiality or worklessness as non-compositional operates historically because it asserts a kind of revolutionary declaration. It confronts the given in what can be understood as an attempt to negate or destroy it. But capitalism always manages to incorporate and put negating action to work. Therefore, negating action in order to be truly effective must avoid detection and be indiscernible from that which is being negated. This is not to diminish the importance of these earlier examples that tend towards the non-compositional, but instead to highlight the fact that at different stages of the city's historical development or lack thereof, there might indeed be different definitions of non-typological and non-compositional architecture. In the work of Atelier Bauau, a different strategy is at work. Their architecture tends towards non-compositional exteriors that borrow from the background of common inessentiality that is increasingly commonplace in the built environment and perpetually emerging from the destruction of experience in the capitalist city. By doing so, the studio suggests the possibility of an architecture that refuses to engage with or seek the recognition of that which it negates and subtracts itself from. We should not limit the understanding of Atelier Bauau's illumination of what a pedagogical architectural project can be to their built works, but recognize that its publications and modes of representation, drawing, and writing are part and parcel of it. In graphic anatomy, Tsukamoto and Kaijima write that in fields such as botany or anatomy, the techniques for drawing are so constrained that individual subjectivity is suppressed. This clears the way for anyone from anywhere to contribute to or learn from that form of knowledge. It is here that we can begin to understand how a guidebook, atlas, or even a building can offer a common ground upon which to discuss the impossibility of dwelling and therefore open architecture up to new potentials and new uses without predicates. This kind of honesty, carried courageously to its radical conclusion, calls into question the subjectivity of the architect and the entire historical practice of architecture. But this confrontation does not mean that any coming new primitive, non-typological and non-compositional architecture must not act. Instead, it must work to carry our essential human inoperativity and its possible common ground into the act of making architecture, be it drawn, written, or built. Here, architecture and architects themselves might become barbarians or new primitives. As Atelier Bauau, and indeed so many other Japanese architects teach us, in the words of Walter Benjamin, quote, in its buildings, pictures, and stories, mankind is preparing to outlive culture, if need be. And the main thing is that it does so with a laugh. This laughter may occasionally sound barbaric, well and good. 
Let us hope that from time to time, the individual will give a little humanity to the masses who will one day repay them with compound interest, unquote. Thanks for listening to this episode. Air AA podcasts are developed, recorded, mixed and edited by the Architectural Association from our home on Bedford Square in central London. To find more episodes, view the show notes and explore other Air AA series, visit air.aaschool.ac.uk.